Good morning. Thank you for joining me. Um, if you would, please turn over to Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke chapter 7. Now, before we begin, um, I wanted to debunk a common misconception that many Christians today perceive as truth. We are not all equal. Now, before you start ranting and raving, uh, let me ex- uh, give me the opportunity to explain because I will throughout this this lesson or this sermon. Um, so we are not all equal. This is something that the prosperity gospel and its proponents refuse to accept, let alone teach. See, we do not all have equal understanding of the scriptures. Um, things will not be revealed to us equally. Uh, we are not equally mature in our faith. You know, some of our sins are more heinous than others. Some of us had to be dragged out of the depths uh, that others couldn't even imagine existed. So there are people that are smarter than me. There are people that are more wise than me, that are better speakers, that are more articulate. And sadly, there are those that are more devout. So we are not all equal. It is important to keep this in mind as we go into the scriptures. Now, I would be remiss of my duties if uh, at the beginning of this holiday week, if I failed to discuss our attitude of thanksgiving. The Oxford English Dictionary uh, definition of thanksgiving is the expression of gratitude, especially to God. So the Thanksgiving holiday is one of the most Christian holidays if we actually look at it um, in the literal sense. So when we pray, what do we do? We thank God for what he's given us. We thank him for opportunities, you know, fill in the blank. But how often is that out of habit or routine instead of being in earnest? You know, most of us can think back to a time when God delivered us from a trial and our thanks were sincere. They were intense and in earnest. You know, we see this very thing occur in Luke chapter 7. Um, so before we get into Luke 7, let's recall the three things that we must consider we must always consider when we read the scriptures. The first is the author, and then the audience, and then the context, right? So who is our author here? Our author is Luke. Um, Luke's style of writing is quite unique to the other uh, writers of the synoptic gospels or the four gospels as most people know them uh, because Luke writes in a very matter-of-fact fashion. You know, he writes in a very um, literal Sense possibly to, due to his vocational background as a f- physician, um, which means that most of his writings are uh, what's a friend of mine called a fluff-free gospel. You know, as far as we know, Luke had no specific audience, but merely wrote almost as a historian to record the miraculous accounts of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. So, what is our context? Well, Jesus has been baptized. Uh, he's been out teaching and preaching, um, and he's been performing miracles, which include raising people from the dead. 
Now he's begun to publicly heal people of their infirmities so, uh, so that it verified his authority to forgive sins, including tax collectors um, who were at the very bottom rung of the societal ladder. Now this obviously has left the Pharisees enraged and affronted because their authority and their prestige has now been undermined or challenged. So the rumors begin to spread about Jesus as the Pharisees begin to uh, describe him as a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and a friend of sinners. So let's not forget who it was that said these things. So we're going to go into Luke chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 36 through 50. It says, starting in 36, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the anointment. This anointment is uh, is that fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have rightly judged. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace excuse me so this is a true demonstration of genuine thanksgiving these Pharisees you know they wanted to share a meal with Jesus but but why Um, this is a bit speculative um, but I believe uh, the c- continuing context would uh, affirm this belief. But I, I think these Pharisees were, were wanted to share a meal with Jesus for selfish purposes. You know, whether it be because of Jesus' following, that they thought maybe they might indirectly share in that prestige. You know, well, if we're around Jesus when he's getting praised, maybe they'll praise us. Or perhaps they were already plotting. Um, but then a woman, it says a woman 
who is a sinner. So let me go back here for those of you watching. It says, then a woman who is a sinner, which means her sin is known publicly. What does she do? She humbles herself and approaches Jesus. Now, I've said this before, and somebody actually said, well, how is she humbling herself? She's, you know, she's at the bottom of that societal ladder, right? Well, she's humbling herself because if her sin is known publicly, then she knows the amount of ridicule and shame that she will bring upon herself to approach Jesus Christ in this large crowd. So she's most likely being mocked and ridiculed and spat on um, while trying to break through this multitude just so that she can be in her master's presence. That's how she's humbling herself. But, but what did she bring with her? She brought fragrant, fragrant oil. So she, she brought fragrant oil. What were those used for? Those were predominantly used for burials, right? The, um, there's and there's a lot in that. We could spend all day on just that, but we're we're gonna move on. Um, but do you know what? Why that is significant? It's because this was probably this this flask of oil was probably the only thing of value that she had left. You know, she then begins to wash. Jesus Christ's feet with her tears, these tears of remorse, of repentance, and love, and then she even dries his feet with her hair. This is what leads me to believe that she had nothing left of value and that she was most likely caught in her sin and then was then cast out to die. I mean, read the old Levitical law of what happens when a woman... I'm making quite the assumption here but I would assume it's an adulterous sin of some kind um, but most likely she was thrown out and, and left to die and the only thing that she had left of value was probably what she inherited through her family which may have may very well have been this flask of oil so it then says that the man um the man who invited Jesus spoke to himself. He spoke to himself. And then Jesus answered. Now, when it says he spoke to himself, I don't think, and this is my opinion, but I don't think he spoke audibly. I don't think he was speaking literally outward and saying these things. I think he was speaking inwardly. But it says that Jesus answered. Now, that's amazing because it shows that Jesus Christ knows our hearts, and and that's exactly what he was showing the people here. Christ exposed this Pharisee to the true condition of his heart and showed him what a truly repentant heart looks like. Now, there, there was a young, I'm going to tell you a quick story. There was a young man that I was talking to um, not too awful long ago, and he had gotten upset. Uh, because of how his dad prayed. Now, I asked him about it, and he said that he wasn't upset but embarrassed. He said, every time dad starts praying, he starts crying. And I, was, I said, well, why, why are you upset? He said, well, I'm not really upset. It's just embarrassing. And I said, you should be grateful that he does. 
you know, I said, you have always lived a life knowing what grace is, believing the truth, and had nev- have never had to live a life outside of that truth. But your dad and I have lived lives that are so detestable in the eyes of God that God and God pulled us out of such depths of sin that it makes grace so much more beautiful. And it is because your dad has a right understanding of God's mercy that he can't help not to cry when he's reminded of it. Some of us had to be broken before God could transform us into something new. Now, am I saying to go out and sin and sin and sin so that grace would abound? As Paul says, God forbid. Absolutely not. It's just showing, and Jesus Christ is showing us here and teaching us that those who are pulled out of the deepest hells are the ones that appreciate, seem to appreciate grace the most because they have a a right understanding of where they are. Whereas if you were to take someone who lived a uh, worldly good, like more, you know, morally good in the world's eyes, morally good life according to the world, and were to tell them that they were a sinner, it would probably be a lot harder for them to accept that as truth. Excuse me. So when we rightly understand God's holiness and our unrighteousness, this is how we ought to approach the cross. Exactly as this sinful woman, how she approached Christ. We seek Christ in total submission and in complete humility, and in doing so, we receive his righteous mercy. So this is precisely what I meant in the beginning when I said that we are not all equal. Some of us must experience and endure things in this life that others can't or won't really comprehend. You know, some of us have experienced true loss that some people may never have to go through. Some people have experienced health conditions that many of us may never have to go through. I mean, you can you can use all of those things as an as um, an example to show you that we are not all equal and that God does not treat us equally in that sense. Right? There are things that that we must endure and experience in this life that other people can't or won't. Now, inversely, God also allows some of us to witness things that are so glorious that others may even try to refute that it happened. The only thing that is equal for us all is that we all need grace equally. We have all sinned against God. We are all transgressors of the law. We have all earned our wages of sin, which is death. And not a single one of us has the ability or the authority to free us from that bondage that we have enslaved ourselves to, except Christ. Jesus Christ does have that authority, and by trusting him, by clinging to him like we would cling to a parachute, we might be saved. Now, do you know what the most amazing part of this biblically historical account is? It's that Jesus Christ tells her, let me find it. 
right here in verse 48. He says, your sins are forgiven. He tells her that her faith has saved her. This is nothing that she did. Um, in verse 50, he says, your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is nothing that, that this woman did of her own. This is not some work or action that she had to do, but she simply placed her faith in the only one who saves. And Jesus Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And this sinful woman just simply agreed. She just agreed with that. She didn't do anything. She just agreed. It's true. She just agreed to it. So we hear the truth. We read the truth. We believe the truth. We agree with the truth. And then we begin to obey the truth. Let me say that again. We hear the truth. We read the truth. We believe the truth. Then we agree with the truth. And then we will obey the truth. That's that's the order that these things will work. We will hear it. Then we will read it ourselves and try to rightly divide the word. Then we will believe it as true. We will agree with it. Once we agree with it, that's when that transformation process starts taking hold of us. And then we will begin to obey it. Jesus Christ then sends her out with a commission of hope. He says, go in peace. So if, if we have truly been born again, born of the Spirit, then Christ is commissioning us with this same pilgrimage. You know, I want to challenge those of you who have not been born again to finally submit to the authority of Christ, to humble yourself as this woman did, and to repent of your sins so that you can give thanks to the one who created and saved you. Now, I doubt that uh, very many people listening to this are unsaved. So for those of you that are saved, if you are a child of God, I charge you with an examination of your gratitude. Does your gratitude for the sacrifice given for you look even remotely like this sinful woman? Does it look like how this sinful woman approached Jesus Christ? Does it look like her, the fervency of her gratitude and thankfulness? Have you brought everything that you consider of value? Have you brought that to the feet of Jesus and used it to glorify him? Have your tears of sorrow, those tears of sorrow, for your rebellion against God, have they been turned into tears of joy like hers when she was told that her sins were forgiven? And have you publicly sealed this new covenant with your baptism? Do you give God thanks in your prayers out of routine or out of the genuineness of your heart? So today, let us give thanks to the one whom has promised that he has saved, he is saving, and he will save on the day of judgment. Let us pray, let us repent, and let us give thanks.
just like this unnamed woman in Luke 7. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Let us think about our words as we, as we say them to you. Let us choose them intentionally. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for our homes. Thank you for our families and friends. But thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that convicts us, that rebukes us, but that encourages us, that gives us hope, gives us strength in difficult times, that reminds us of the firm foundation that which we stand on. Let us not lose heart in difficult times and trials that we are all having to go through, but let us constantly be reminded and redirected back to the foot of your cross to constantly seek your grace and your mercy. But let us do it with an earnest heart out of pure adoration and love for you and your truth and your gospel. We cannot thank you enough. Be with us throughout this week and throughout the entirety of this week. Let us be reminded of our thankfulness to you. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.